we have Tim Suter of the Suter Company. Tim is the CEO and president of an organization. And Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're the third generation of suitors to run the Suter Company. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. The, so the Suter Company is local to me where, where I live in the Midwest. And it's one of those great, I think, American stories where you have a local family, a locally owned operation, but at scale. And what I mean by at scale is, Tim, you, you guys employ what, 300 people? Yeah, about 350 total employees. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is big business right in my own backyard. And I, I think it's a powerful story. And I, I think, Tim, your story, the company's story, what you've been able to accomplish offers value for other entrepreneurs, even executives, small business owners. And we're going to dig a little bit into that today. Tell us about the Suter Company. Yeah, so um, I was fortunate enough to have a, a grandfather who was an entrepreneur after World War I when he was trying to figure out what to do after he came back from, from serving in France. He dabbled around in a few different things, but ultimately decided that he wanted to start his own business. And he, he wanted as the type of person who, who wanted to work for himself. And so uh, he fulfilled a dream of his, which was to was to have a farm, and he utilized that farm to start a small business. They slaughtered chickens and they sold uh, meat and eggs to restaurants around Northern Illinois. And that that was back in 1925 when my grandpa started the business. You know, he it was a very humble beginning. Uh, the, the business was small, stayed local, struggled through the Great Depression, survived through World War II. Were actually closed for just a few months during World War II and. The federal government uh, put a, a price freeze on uh, on some things, and it made it nearly impossible to run the business. So uh, we were we were closed for a few months while that happened, and then fortunately he came back and restarted the business and and uh, handed it off to my dad in the 1950s. And then my dad spent his whole career running the business, and and I kind of grew up in the business. Uh, my first summer working at the Suter Company was in 1981, and essentially it's the only place I've ever worked since. So it's, it's definitely a family business. Uh, I am part of the third generation of leadership, but one of my favorite parts of the story that we're going to get into is that we are now a 100% employee-owned company, and we love talking about our employees as the fourth generation of ownership. So we are in the food business, food processing business. And our products can be found all throughout the United States and Canada, with one caveat. In our business, uh, we operate in mostly for COPAC and private label partners, which means we don't have a brand and our name isn't visible on any of the packages that a consumer would pick up. It would always be the brand name of either our customer or a retail chain, a large retail chain that sells groceries. It would be fair to say, you know, obviously I'm familiar with the company and, and some of those brands and and we don't have to mention any of the brands by name, but it would be a fair and reasonable statement to say that most people living in North America, if they've shopped at a grocery store, local or large chain, or even gone to some of the, uh, I guess, mid-level fast food type restaurants, food places, they probably have seen your product and probably consumed it. Yeah, that's, that's a fair statement. Uh, less so on the food service side of things. We do a little bit with restaurants and other traditional food service markets, but primarily retailers. And in this day and age, grocery is an interesting word, right? Because when I was a kid and you wanted groceries, you actually went to the grocery store. Now you can go to the gas station or the hardware store or the dollar store or the wholesale club or wherever that the case may be, including grocery stores, of course. And so our products can be found in all of those places where retail groceries are available and household, you know, brand names and household uh, well-known 
large chains uh, that our products can be found in. So it's a food product and it, it is chicken. Chicken salad primarily is, is okay. one of our top items. So we make a wide variety of prepared foods, mostly entree or protein-based salads like chicken salad and tuna salad, things of that nature. We also make some dips and spreads to produce some shelf-stable snack and lunch kits and just always trying to innovate for our customers in the, in the food arena. But the common thread that, that uh, runs through all of our products is convenience. So what's really the trend that we're riding that's been driving our growth is the way that the American consumer has changed their eating habits over the last generation or so, meaning uh, today's consumer is, is so busy and has so much going on that they want their food to be available immediately, ready to eat, portable, highly convenient, on the go, eat it in the car, put it in your kid's lunchbox, you know, two income households, kids running everywhere to soccer practice and everything else. So really convenience is a big part of, of what we offer, whether that's to a small business operator or to an individual consumer. In, in that food item would be, for those that haven't caught on, it's going to be like a, a tuna salad or a chicken salad. So really a convenient way to get a protein food source yeah. that's, it's stable at temperature. So you can throw it in the, in the car, the lunch box or lunch bag, and it's not going to go bad. Correct. And, that, and that's probably, you know, again, without using brand names, I, I can assure everybody that's listening, if you're, you're in North America, you've probably had some of the Suter Company's products. Now, when we look at that, Tim, it, you guys actually looked at your SKUs. So you looked at what products you were making and somewhere along the line made a decision to, to pair back, maybe eliminate some products. And the Suter Company did have its own brand at one point. I, I remember seeing it and I remember thinking, what is this? Like that no longer is, is available. And you guys focused your efforts and kind of drilled down in a, almost a niche fashion, eliminated product and got better and became industry leaders at what you continue to do. Is, is that correct? Yeah. And so one of the things that I think will come up a couple of different times as we go on through this conversation today is the idea of really focusing on what you're good at and really being committed to being excellent at the things you choose to do. And some of the most important decisions we've made over the last, I'll say, 20 plus years have been some of the things that we decided not to do. Um, we got out of some specific businesses, as you mentioned, Ray, and what that allowed us to do was really to, to get even better at the things we, we kept doing. And it also allowed us to reallocate resources that were being drained away by non-productive businesses that we were engaged in. And I'll give you a couple examples here shortly. You know, obviously every business has a finite amount of resources available to them. And so it's really important that we decide not only what we are going to do, but what we're not going to do. And so one of the things we did for many, many years as a company, we used to be uh, in, we sort of evolved from a farm to a poultry company, to a salad company, to a prepared foods company. And for many years, we cooked and deboned our own chickens, which is a highly, highly labor-intensive practice that also consumes a lot of space. And what we ultimately found after a couple of years of, of study and research was that we really and truly were not adding any value to our customers by, by taking on that, that process. We weren't saving ourselves much money, if, if any, especially when you consider the number of people and the amount of space that was being consumed by that operation. And so... We abandoned that operation and we started buying uh, cooked poultry that had already been cooked and deboned. And, and that was sort of an inflection point for us on being able to take our business to the next level and grow because we were able to devote all those resources 
to the more value added into the business for us, which is the blending and packaging of ingredients and not just the, the further processing of poultry. So we let the experts be the experts in the poultry business, and we focused our expertise on, on adding value for the, uh, further blending and packaging you know, uh, to create convenience foods. And I think the business lesson there is it's the classic 80-20. 20% is, is that co-pack, is the blending. That's what you're good at. That's probably where the profit is. And then that 80% back at that time was 80% of your time and resources were invested in things like deboning poultry. Mm-hmm. And that really wasn't what your industry best at. And the, I guess the business take-home point is as a business owner, as an executive, you need to step back and really look at where you're allocating your resources and ask, should be should we be in the poultry business deboning chicken or can we outsource that to somebody that is industry leading and then divert and devote more of our resources into that 20%, which is what we are industry leaders at. Yep, that's well said. Uh, no, really no need for me to elaborate on that. You've captured the point perfectly. So who, but who came, because so many businesses just won't do that. Even if they know they've got operations that are labor intensive, they're cost intensive, they're whatever, the owner will look at it, executive team will look at it, and they'll just leave it for fear of, you know, well, we're a chicken company, so we're, we're not going to get out of poultry because, mm-hmm. well, we started in uh, 1925 and that's what we do. But, but so how did, you, how did you make the decision to do that? That takes guts. Well, as I mentioned, it was not a quick decision. It was a couple of years in the making, and we did walk a little bit before we before we ran. We had we had reached the point where we had started to supplement our own cooking and deboning with buying from the outside because we simply couldn't keep up. We didn't have the the capacity to keep up with the growth that we were experiencing. And so, as we started to supplement, it really proved the point for those of us who were on the side of the debate that said, you know, we really ought not to be in the cooking and deboning business, we ought, to, we ought to, as you said, Ray, let the industry leaders and experts in cooking and deboning do that job and really focus on what we're good at, which is the blending and packaging of ingredients. And so we were able to prove it to ourselves with, with sort of a small trial in the early days of that concept. And what that showed us is that it didn't change our cost structure. It didn't change our finished good quality. It improved our service to our customers because we were able to keep up with growth as needed. And so we didn't just dive into the, it was a huge decision, huge emotional decision, by the way, not just financial and not just space management and not just labor decisions, but it was an emotional decision because we'd been doing it for, at that point, probably 50 years, <laughs> generationally, right? It was, it came from my grandpa, it went through my dad, it carried on with me, but yeah, so we had to deal with the emotional component of the decision as well. But eventually, uh, as we dabbled in it, we were able to prove to ourselves that, that what we were theorizing was, was correct. And then that allowed us to just progress and eventually get out of that business completely. Never lost one of those employees because we were growing. We were able to reallocate them to more value-added roles. And it was a win-win uh, you know, across the board for the whole organization. So that's just kind of one small example of a decision to get out of a process. Another one was our decision to evolve from a company that focused on food service to one that focused more on retail. Now, we do still do some food service business, but by and large, our business is much more focused on retail. So define the, the food service would be the suitor company supplying a 
restaurant, yeah, a, a, a buy here, eat here, whether it's fast food restaurant or whatever. And retail would be, I, the consumer, go to the store, purchase the product, and I'm not going to consume it there. I'm going to bring it home, put it in my kid's lunch or, or my own lunch or whatever. Is that, is that right? Yep. Yep. And that, and there again, I, I think there you've proven that by focusing on what you can be an industry leader at, contrary to what a lot of people would say is, well, we're, we have these people in this side of our operation. If we eliminate that, what are they going to do? Well, they just get consumed by the other side of the operation because you probably end up doing more of it or you need, you need labor to do it better. As I think it's kind of fun to take this trip down memory lane, as I, as I recall some of these decisions, you know, for us, as we really recognized what, what, what was it we were delivering to the market, which really in, in one word is convenience, we could see that that was going to be more valuable to the individual consumer in a retail setting than it was going to be to a business operator who was serving our chicken salad uh, at, at, their, at their restaurant as part of, a, let's say, a chicken salad sandwich. So when we looked at our value equation and what was really mattering to the, to the people who pay the bills, so to speak, we could see a clearer path to retail being a better value add than we could to, to a food service operator. Now, to be fair, we still do some business in food service and we can still deliver some value there. But when we know, when we look at the whole spectrum, we know where our strength is and that's more on the retail side. And I had an example early on in, in my working career I had supplied Polaris and I was at a Polaris conference and they had a, a young CEO. He was recognized at the time for his age and the position he held. He gave a speech in part of the meeting and he said, we, you know, we're Polaris. We've, we have personal watercraft and we have four wheelers and we've got this brand new victory motorcycle on whatever he goes, but that's not what we sell. We sell an experience hearing what you said. Do you guys sell a, a cold pack? chicken or tuna product? Or are you selling convenience? How do you define it? As you think about our evolution, right? And, and why we went through, you know, farm, poultry, salad maker, prepared foods company, it really, we're coming closer and closer to what you're describing, right? Which is that really what we sell is, is in fact convenience, right? Because you think of the way that people operate in today's world. And what I mean by that is just, I mean, anyone listening can think of their own life, right? And how busy we are and how many meetings we have and how many appointments we go to. And, and if, we, if we have a family, how, you know, where we chase our kids to and all that kind of stuff. You know, when I grew up, dinner time was, was a much more of a kind of a sacred time, right? The family gathered around the, the dinner table. There was significant time put into preparing the meal. The ingredients were, were uh, prepared and that whole sort of thing. That just doesn't exist by and large anymore in, in America. So we really see, see ourselves as delivering convenient solutions to the people who, who choose to eat our products. That happens to be chicken salad and tuna salad, you know, are our two most popular items, but it can be anything. And that's how we've evolved into dips and spreads. It's how we evolved into shelf-stable shelf snack and lunch kits. All the things that we've done over the years, we made deviled eggs for a extended period of time. That was another example while it was successful, but everything is really more about delivering convenience to a busy audience, a very busy audience. So I have a, the CEO of a, a sizable organization, 350 employees, the suitor company, you. So is that selling convenience top of mind when you're looking at making decisions and driving the business? Are, are you, do you ever sit back and say, you know, we, we sell convenience and in, in, is this new idea, this new shiny object over here, 
is it going to allow us to sell convenience? Is that ever top of mind? Uh, for sure. In fact, I think it's so ingrained in what we do now that it, it probably really doesn't even need to, be, need to be said very often. But I mean, we know we know at the end of the day that if we're not solving uh, that problem for either a business operator or more likely an individual consumer, that takes away our that takes away our value add. We blend ingredients, we package those blended ingredients together in some sort of a convenient fashion. We solve somebody's problem of what am I going to, and by the way, one of the things I should have mentioned, the type of products that we make, what we see is that we're making food for, for either lunch, lunchtime, or, or snacks or appetizers. Uh, we don't make normal breakfast, you know, traditional breakfast foods. We certainly don't do beverage and we don't tend to make things that are center of the plate dinner items. So we know even further, you know, we further define our, our, our playing field as lunch and snack and appetizer convenience foods. Now there's an opportunity to break a little bit of a mold because there's nothing that says we couldn't come up with a great idea that would be a more traditional breakfast item or center of the plate dinner item or something like that. But Again, the way people eat these days has evolved as well because we don't as often eat the three traditional meals that we ate when I was growing up. People snack throughout the day. You know, people have different meal sizes at different times of the day. Sometimes they don't eat lunch. Sometimes they don't bother with dinner, whatever the case may be. But in general, that that further narrows what we're what we know we're we're best at right now. And in, in there again, that a, a new idea like exploring breakfast it would be subject to satisfying that convenience requirement. And if it didn't, it's probably outside of your wheelhouse. And, and you might say, yeah, we could, but we shouldn't. Yep. Yep. And those are good examples of questions. We, we have a filtering process that we use when we consider new opportunities. It helps prevent us from chasing shiny objects <laughs> and it makes sure that we're fo fo focused on what we consider to be our strategic pillars. And it considers things like the ingredients that we already buy and the suppliers that we already have and the processes that we're already good at, the food safety risks that might be involved in a given new item. Largely, almost exclusively deal when we blend ingredients, something in that equation is protein-based. And that's not quite literal, but again, a protein-based, uh, number one, it's a, it's, it has high appeal for today's consumer. And number two, it lends to a higher value add opportunity from our point of view. So we tend to deal in proteins. Now that can look a little different today because there's plant-based proteins that are, you know, emerge, an emerging market. There's things like hummus that use beans as their, or chickpeas as their source of protein, things of that nature. So there's different ways to, to you know, get at those things, but that further kind of further defines what we're, what we're good at and what we're after. But that all still, and I was going to ask you about the vegetable protein or the non-meat proteins, which are extremely popular, but at the end of the day, it's still going to fit into that box. And that mm -hmm. box is protein, convenient, and then that portable, so because I guess portable, portable makes the convenient possible, but it's still going to fit those parameters. Yep. It's so interesting that you guys have kind of been, and I guess it shouldn't be a surprise given your your success and growth, but so many businesses won't do that. They won't say, you know, they're stuck on, well, we already do this. We make money. Yeah, but it's costing you so many opportunities over here and over here is really where you're good. So that, that I, I think for lack of a better description, it's pretty cool that you guys have been, are doing that and we're willing to, to acknowledge it and willing to say no to stuff. 
And the other, the other part of the equation for us was recognizing that our true talent lies in our, in our manufacturing capabilities um, and not in our branding and marketing capabilities. And so as part of our evolution to the retail side of the things and somewhat away from food service was the recognition that we weren't going to get there with our own brand. And so that's what led to our ultimately to our decision to focus on COPAC and private label as part of our, again, what we refer to as our strategic pillars. So we are, we're intentional about aligning ourselves with customers who are interested in private label providers, if they're a large chain, or manufacturers who are looking to extend their product line by working with somebody like us as a co-packer. So that way we're taking advantage of companies who have nationally recognized brand names, who have large sales forces, who have extensive distribution networks, and basically will manage all of the sales, marketing, and distribution elements of the business after we make the product. So that's another intentional thing that we said, look, we're not going to be, our goal isn't to make a suitor company a household brand name. We don't have the resources or the talent to do that. We're great at manufacturing. So let's align ourselves with customers who are great at that and make sure we choose those partnerships wisely. And that's, you know, for those that are tuning in, if, if, if you're not following or understanding what Tim just said, it's basically this easy. If you're going to put a food product on the shelf at the supermarket, you're going to be competing with a large publicly traded company with probably global sales mm -hmm. in the billions of dollars that has possibly, they may have a mar advertising and marketing department with a hundred or more employees. That's a third the size of your company. Mm -hmm. So you guys stepped back and said, and that's why I remember the name of your product because I'd seen it. But then I remember thinking, I've never seen this before. That's the example. I, I'm familiar with the brands you supply because they've spent the time, but really that's, that's another level of awareness where you guys are like, Hey, well, that's not our strong suit. We belong here. Let them do it. Yeah. Those big players have marketing budgets that are bigger than our total revenue. <laughs> right. They also, have, they also have expertise and sophistication on how to reach individual consumers that uh, it would take us an incredible amount of time and energy and resource to acquire that level of expertise and understanding of consumer behavior of how to create a package that's appealing and that will win out at that moment when a consumer's walk, you know, a consumer in America walks into a grocery store, there's 50,000 items. <laughs> How do you get a consumer to try something new? We're creatures of habit, right? We all are. So these are, these are true professionals that work at these large organizations that have considerable expertise on understanding consumer behavior, point of purchase impulse, what they're looking for, what kind of packaging will make somebody stop and try something new. They have the advertising budgets to put out whether it's coupons or TV ads or whatever the case may be. And all of that that goes, goes into building, you know, a household brand name, you know, pick any one that we're familiar with, whether it's Coca-Cola or, uh, or whatever, right? I mean, uh, those, are those are very, very highly expert companies at what they're doing. And it, and it take, uh, you know, a small company like us, I suppose, could achieve that maybe on a regional basis, but even that would take a tremendous amount of time, energy, and resource to accomplish. And I always look at it like the my engineering roots always come out. I think of it in terms of capacity. I go back to the plant floor in the factory. You know, the, the suitor company has limited capacity. And if we start allocating capacity from what we're currently doing to learn how to become the, the expert in packaging, creating top of mind awareness, competing in that big box grocery store, there's 50,000 products. Well, we just stole capacity. We just took machines yeah that work really well for what we're good at. So something's going to give, we're going to come up short somewhere, 
resources are finite for sure. And yep, you take from one and, and give to the other and, and something's going to suffer. So we've tried to, we've tried to really hone in on, on, on who we are and what we're good at. And, and, and I'm self-aware enough to know um, part of the reason for that is because operations is what I know and love. So in, to some degree, it's a reflection of, of, of me and, and my passion, right? For, you know, I grew up in the business working in the plant and, and uh, working almost every job out there and, and really understanding what it takes to, to have an efficient, smooth, you know, workflow. And, and, and that's what I love. I love building that puzzle out in the manufacturing world. And so it, to some degree, it's a reflection of, of what I know and love and, and have a talent for. And, and the appeal of having a large brand name uh, just wasn't, wasn't something I was particularly interested in. So that's, that's, I'm self-aware enough to know that's part of it too. In that, so in that's something we didn't talk about is your background. So I, I wrote a note, nine, summer 81, Tim Suter's out on the shop floor. <laughs> and at that point, are, are you guys still, you're still in the poultry business at that point. So you're still, you're dealing with livestock, right? So we, at that point, we were not slaughtering anymore, but we were cooking, cooking and deboning. Yes. So we got out of slaughtering fairly early on by about the middle of mid 1950s, all through the eighties and nineties, we were still cooking and deboning our own chicken meat. So you were out there in, in the plant doing that. And then education wise, what's your, what is your, I guess, formal academic vitae? Like what's your degrees and things of that nature? As I started working, I was in middle school, actually, when I started working in the plant. And so I worked every summer while I went through high school and college. I, I have a degree from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, for, uh, in, in deg uh, degrees in marketing and statistics. And then I got my uh, executive MBA from Northern Illinois University in 1997 after I, I worked for about six or seven years and then went back to school at NIU and, and got my master's degree and my MBA from, from Northern Illinois University. So, so I'm interested in this, in this piece. So you have the kind of the school of hard knocks experience. You, you've been on the plant floor. And, and I love the fact that you've done almost everything in the plant floor. I think there's no better way to educate an employee at what a company does than give them the opportunity to do that. All of that being said, you have your bachelor's degree. You've been working in the family business. So you've got industry experience at all levels. What, what, did, what did the executive MBA add to your toolbox? Yeah. Was there anything you, you left that program and you're like, I can put my finger on this and this thing that I learned here in the executive MBA is, has made me better at running the company. Is there anything that stands out? Yeah. So uh, first of all, compliments to Northern Illinois University. The program was, was excellent. All of the teachers were industry professionals. And so the person who taught the HR class was a 30 year HR person. The person who taught business law was a 30 year lawyer. I mean, and just, and so on and so forth all throughout the program, it was highly relevant and it was extremely valuable to me. And I can think of many things for me. And I think this is probably common, right? When you go through undergrad and you really haven't, I've worked, I had worked a lot out in the plant, but I, I didn't have any real business experience in terms of it on the administrative side of things. You know, I, I learned a lot in undergrad, but I had nothing to apply it to immediately. And so it wasn't as meaningful, but after working for six or seven years, and holding several positions within the company. When I went through my executive MBA, every class I took, I was applying immediately, whether it was accounting or HR or business law or finance or whatever the case may be. And that was the great thing about an executive MBA for me is it wasn't focused in one area. It was, it touched all areas of business. 
So I was applying things on a daily basis that I, it was a Saturday program. So I'd go to school all day Saturday. I'd come back to work on Monday and literally start applying the things I was learning. So it was, it was wonderful. It meant a lot to me. And I kind of recognized, again, just sort of being self-aware. I knew the Suter Company was the only place that I had ever worked and was probably ever going to work. And so I have just that narrow experience. And so I felt like it was important for me to make sure I pursued that extra educational opportunity since I, I, you know, it wasn't my plan or it wasn't part of my past where I worked for two or three different companies and had an opportunity to go through multiple, you know, management training programs or whatever the case may have been. But so because I knew my focus on the suitor company was so intense, I wanted to make sure I took that next step of my education. And I think that having the ability to make the education relevant, significant, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that you being able to, to go to the classroom and then go to the office on Monday and take the classroom experience from Saturday with you to work on Monday is huge. I think you, you end up having a greater appreciation and understanding of, of the theory that's being presented in the classroom. You're like, oh, here it is in action. Yep, for sure. Whether it was learning to read a balance sheet or learning to put our capital expenditure plan through the lens of, of true finance, whether it's HR principles that we still utilize today, whether, you know, on and on and on business law, of course, in this day and age, the world that we operate in, the leader of a company has to have a, a good understanding of, of, of what's going on in the, in the legal world as it relates to business. All those things, there was just so much relevance. It really, really made a big difference for me. You're the, you're the second small business owner, business owner that went and pursued MBA education while they owned and operated a business and kind of went into work and just saw the opportunity to apply the classroom. And in his case, he, he said, he's like, it gave me a better understanding of the, of the numbers. And I, and I can share with you who it is. I don't think he would care. And you probably know him. It was Joe Walsh when Joe had JP Hannigan's in DeKalb. Okay. And he said, he's like, I was, he goes, you know, I was running this bar and restaurant. I really knew nothing about it. We were, we were paying our bills. I was making money because the accountant told me, but <laughs> I took the class and now I understood, I understood what my, my fixed and variable costs were. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me to fine tune. Like I, I knew what my profit was. And I knew that as long as I managed the costs over here, the return would be here. And, and that gave me real data to make decisions over what went on the menu, what didn't go on the menu and everything else. So that, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I would echo that for sure. I mean, my dad was doing a great job trying to trying to teach me the, the ABCs of how to read financial statements. And, you know, I was making my way through it, but the minute I had some more, more in-depth accounting classes and some more in-depth, you know, finance classes and was able to immediately apply that all of a sudden just, you know, some light bulbs turned on for me and, and those things really started to make sense. And it helped me do a better job analyzing and understanding which levers to pull and, and all the things you just described. Third generation family experience means you, you grew up in the business at a young age. You were, you were working your summers, earned the bachelor's degree, and then the executive piece. So clearly there's a benefit to all three of those things. Today, operations wise, how do you kind of manage? I mean, 350 people, that, that's a lot of moving parts, literally. It's a sizable organization. You guys have two locations. Right now, granted, they're in the same community, but you have two physical structures that are, I don't know, what are they, a mile apart, three quarters of a mile? Yeah, a couple miles, about three, two and a half miles apart. Yep. 
So That's it's, cool. you're not walking across a parking lot to plant two. You got to get in the car. What, what are you doing on a daily basis to keep your finger on the pulse? In order to grow and scale the way that we have, I've had to, I've had to really hire great people around me. Today, I really see my role as, as making sure that I'm providing the necessary resources, providing the necessary information, helping to break down barriers, and providing the tools that all of those individuals on, on the senior management and, and the rest of the leadership team here at the Suter Company need to be successful and then kind of get out of their way. And let them be the and let them be the talented and smart and creative people that they are, right? And, and not get in the way of that. One of the things we believe deeply in here is is the idea of really being hands on. And this goes back to, in hindsight, thank my dad just tremendously for for quote unquote making me work all those summers in the plant, right? That for sure is the most valuable experience that I've ever had in terms of what has helped make me the leader that I am today. Um, because it gave me a true appreciation for how every single person, every single person contributes to this organization in a powerful and, and meaningful way. It does not matter what your title is. The whole team has to work together. We believe deeply in being hands-on. And so um, whether that's using the old adage of managing by wandering around, which is a little more difficult in the COVID world that we live in right now, but still staying involved. I still do a little bit of the production scheduling. We kind of laugh about that around here, but I do it because it's fun for me and it, it keeps me in touch. I still help manage one of our customers. I try to do some, some things that are more, you know, a little bit less strategic or long-term planning and more tactical and more hands-on so that I'm really experiencing what we're doing well and what we're not doing well at a, at a real level. And I'm not just reading reports to get that information and hopefully not just sitting by my desk because uh, that's not where life happens, right? Life happens out on the plant floor. It happens in your customer's shops. It happens in your supplier's plants. It happens in the grocery store looking at what people are buying and why and all those kind of things. So it's the old lean expression, go to the Gimba, uh, where the real stories are happening, where the real problems are, uh, where solutions are, are found, things of that nature. And that's, I think, priceless. I, I think it you can manage by spreadsheets or accounting reports, but really when you walk and talk, that, that was the way I always described it to my staff was like, we're going to walk and talk because talking to customers, consumers, talking to your staff, that, that's your wealth of information. That, that Those are the folks that know what's going on. And, you know, if, if you create an environment where they feel comfortable communicating, if there's something do, being done very well, they'll suggest you do it that way elsewhere. If there's something that you shouldn't be doing as an organization, they'll point that out too. But you won't hear those stories if you're not out there engaging and in, in like I, I always said, walking and talking. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, the most valuable thing we can do is be present. Yes. And now what are you guys doing? So my last brick and mortar business, I had one, one wall in my office. It was painted with dry erase paint and we had about 13 profit centers. So goods or services we sold, we kept tally of where we, we had a monthly goal and we kept tally. The problem with that is is I didn't know if we were doing good or bad until we got to the end of the month. And then it was like, well, we missed. <laughs> so well, it's too late. The month's over. How do you, how do you make sure you're staying on track? Do you have a secret sauce so that you're, you're watching live in real time and you're like, okay, we're doing, we're trending this way. If we continue this trend, we're trend, we're going to miss the month. So we need to adjust. Do you have any secrets or insight there? I don't know that I would call them secrets, but we do have some, very, we're very disciplined and very routine in the way that we pay attention to the numbers. You know, we have three major production cells across the company. 
So certainly every day I know what all three of those areas, you know, have produced as an example. But then in our weekly senior management staff meetings, we utilize a weekly scorecard. And so every week we're looking at things like employee safety, things like food safety and quality, things like revenue. I mean, you name it, just each person's responsible for populating the key metrics from their area of the business. It takes us maybe five to 10 minutes to review those key metrics every Wednesday morning. And so we know exactly where we stand. And, and that really gives us the pulse so that, that we need to know how the month is going and what the outcome is going to be before we see the financial statements. In, in line items like employee safety, a lost time accident isn't a concern until a company has an employee that got injured at work. But really, if, if you, facilities that don't have lost time accidents, you're going to make more money, you know, because you're, you don't have the downtime, not to mention the fact you're doing right by your employees. Yeah, that's where I would have gone with that is, is that, you know, especially, I mean, it's always true, but especially in these times right now where it's, it's so difficult to attract and retain good people. And I know we're going to talk more about this in a little bit, but, you know, first and foremost, when people show up to work, they better feel safe. Yeah. Um, if they don't feel safe, they won't stay. Um, I mean, that's back to the old Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? You got to meet basic human needs first. One of those is safety. And just, it's the right thing to do. I mean, we're in the manufacturing business. There's a lot of risks. Manufacturing plants can be dangerous places if you're not well-trained. And if you don't know, if you don't know how to keep yourself safe, you don't have the proper PPE, you don't have the proper training, serious injuries can occur. So A, it's the right thing to do. You know, we want to protect the quality of life for our employees and B, yeah, it has a financial benefit. And we can probably shift into a little bit of this now. You and I talked, so in fairness, Tim and I did speak earlier this week before we recorded this and you shared a little bit of, you know, MBA school, most businesses, business owners, managers, the focus is on the bottom line or the focus is on the return to the shareholders. And even if you're self-employed, if you're incorporated, you own all the shares. So your, your, your priority is return to the shareholder, even if that shareholder is you. What you have found, and this is a really cool direction, and this will segue a bit later into the fourth generation of ownership of the Suter Company, but really you look, you step back, you, you went to this conference, you told me, and you you kind of walked away and said, well, if I make serving my employees the priority, we can still run a business. And, and lo and behold, you have, and, and your bottom line's improved. So kind of, and that, that includes that safety piece. You know, the, the business school thing says, if they're not getting hurt, we make more money. But the smart business owner says, I need to take care of my employees because first it's the right thing to do. But the second thing is in any economy, well, good employees are going to be inclined to stay if my God, they feel safe. You know, what, what an idea. So, yeah, I mean, it's been quite a journey, you know, as I, as I grew up in the business and tried and failed at lots of different things and started to see, you know, what my style was going to become, I, you know, keep in mind, I became president and CEO when I was 30. So I was pretty young, pretty naive when that happened. And, and I'm, so I've learned a lot and I've, I've failed plenty over the years. So uh, that that's for one thing, but yeah. So what what you mentioned there, Ray, I, I actually joined a, a peer advisory group. Is is what really started to complete, you know, have a paradigm shift in the lens that I was looking through in terms of running the business. And so I joined a peer advisory group called C12, which is a peer advisory group for Christian CEOs and business owners. Uh, what it allowed me to do is really change the way that I see what I do every day. We have always been a company that's taken good care of our employees. Started with my grandpa, passed on through my dad, 
was certainly what I was taught going into the business. But through looking at things in a completely different lens from the mind of being a, a servant leader, it really just amplified the way that we looked at that and said, okay, yes, making money is important. We are a for-profit business. So we're not throwing that into the garbage can. But having said that, we can use this business, and I will use that word, we can use this business to serve people and to serve their needs, do it in extraordinary ways. One of our core values that we've identified here at the Suter Company, we call extraordinary care. And so what that means is we see the whole person, right? We don't just see a number. We don't just see it as somebody's job to show up and, and, uh, and stand at the production line and, and do their work and go home. We want to serve the entire person. We want to serve them physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, the whole person. And we have a lot of unique programs for how we do that. And we'll, we'll get into some of that. But uh, what ends up happening, which maybe will be surprising to some people, is that when you see a business as a collection of stakeholders and you serve all of your stakeholders, uh, then your financial performance actually will, will ultimately be even better than what it would be if you simply follow the, the idea that you should be maximizing shareholder wealth. I was educated and grew up in the 80s and 90s. That was the popular mantra back then is that a corporation's purpose is to maximize shareholder wealth. I no longer subscribe to that. <laughs> I, I think that's a, a poor way to run a business. And I think it's a, I think it's a short-sighted way to run a business. You know, sustainability is a much bigger issue today than it was 30 years ago. But if you want to run a thriving, flourishing, sustainable organization, I fully encourage you to consider all the stakeholders in your business, which includes your employees, which includes your suppliers, which includes your community, uh, and oh, by the way, it includes your shareholders. We are, in fact, a, a for-profit business. But as we've amplified what we do in the way that we serve others, our financial metrics have done nothing but get better and better. And we're on, we're on year 23, 24 of this journey. We've experienced double-digit growth rate, an average annual compounded growth rate of more than 10% for more than two decades. And there aren't too many companies in the United States who can, who can make that claim. And that's on top of the way that we serve our employees, which I know we're going to get into some of the details of here. But really seeing this business as, as a way to serve others' needs, for me personally as a calling, has really uh, re-energized us as a company, allowed us to do some truly unique things in the way we serve our employees and our community and get fin great financial results all at the same time. So seeing all stakeholders is really, I think, if I could communicate one one point today, that would that would certainly be on the short list is, is really understanding that a business is a is a collection of stakeholders and not and, about maximizing shareholder wealth. You know, that shift from re return, you know, moving away from the, the return to the shareholder and instead making, looking at each employee as, as an actual stakeholder in the company and making serving them a priority will drive that bottom line up and in doing so provide a greater return to the shareholder. At one point in time, I worked for a company. We had four owners. Two of the owners were former GE execs under Jack Welch. The majority owner of the company, I think he had 60%. He was GE Plastics top salesman for 10 years in a row. When GE came out with polycarbonate brand name Lexan, he was their sales guy. Um, I watched him. He, he would buy turkeys for every employee in the factory every year for Thanksgiving. And I watched one year where something got, somebody made a mistake and didn't order the turkeys. And, and I watched him blowing a gasket and, and I watched him say, these people depend on us for their family Thanksgiving meal. 
in and then he literally he was out and he sent like an army of office staff go buy every turkey you can find (laughs) and then we also had this large grassy area in front of the main offices the majority of our factory staff we ran three shifts 24 7 they played soccer the company went out and bought two huge soccer nets or four of them and then they bought the equipment to chalk off two soccer fields and bought soccer balls and allowed any of the factory staff over lunch hours and breaks or on the weekend if they weren't on shift to play soccer there (laughs) and it wasn't a you know well there's a cost there and that cost is going to come out of the profits for the shareholders well sure there's an expense but there's also a return on improving the quality of life of the people that make it happen in the factory. It's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, it really is. And, and I mean, there's study after study that will show that a more engaged uh, workforce is a more productive workforce. If you're that person who has, has the, you know, the focused business mind and you want the metrics, they're available and, and you can support the financial side of this very, very easily. I mean, Obviously, a more uh, engaged and productive workforce, you know, it leads to, to all kinds of things. It leads to a better safety record, leads to a better quality record, it leads to a better customer service record. I mean, just on and on and on. And all of that, of course, helps drive revenue growth and earnings and, and productivity and so on. So if your first impulse is to be business minded about these kind of things, by all be, by all means, be business minded if you need to be to be motivated to do this. But for me, it was more, it really became more about, again, for me personally, seeing this as a calling and seeing this as an opportunity to serve others. My life's work and I'm going to make the best of it. And, and nobody's going to remember, you know, a hundred years from now, how much money the Suter company made in, in 2020 or whatever. Uh, it's, it's meaningless. Um, but the way we care for others, the way we serve others, that's what matters. And that's in, you know, for that business minded person, this is another tool to improve the bottom line. Yeah. Use it. You know, if you don't want to look at caring for others and make that a priority, great. Like you said, make the business case the priority and use this tool. And and when you look at legacy, this is how you build a legacy. Mm -hmm. This is how you're going to have employees that retire and tell their grandkids about this company they worked for and how great it was and all these opportunities they had because of that. That's far greater than, like you said, what, you know, what, it, what was our total revenue in 2020? Now, when we look at what programs, so I, I have one of them I put in my notes, uh, providing life coaches to employees. That's, What's that? That's, to me, kind of one of our, our marquee th- programs that we offer for all employees here at the Suter Company. About four and a half, um, almost five years ago now. I was going on vacation and I, and I read a book by Matthew Kelly called The Dream Manager. I was just, I was blown away. I actually ended up reading it a second time, gone for that week on vacation. And the day I got back, I walked into our HR manager's office and I, I handed the book to her and I said, you got to read this. We're going to get a dream manager, which is essentially a, a, the easiest way to think about it is as a life coach. So our HR manager read the book and uh, loved the concept as well and said, oh, by the way, I want to be our first dream manager. So uh, her name is Chris. We made Chris our first dream manager and, and backfilled her position as HR manager. And, and we've never looked back. We have two full-time dream managers now. We've had more than 100 employees go through the program. And people have done all kinds of amazing things, whether that's going back to school, whether that's buying a first home, whether that's taking their family on a cool vacation to Disney World or something like that. The dreams that people have, of course, are as varied and different as people are themselves, right? So we put no limitations on what people can dream about. 
And then we have our dream managers, what, you know, again, sort of our life coaches, they come alongside these employees, they help them create specific goals, action plans, and then they they become an accountability partner and they work with the person over the course of a year. They meet, this is uh, on paid time. They meet once a month with each of these employees and they check in, how you doing on your plan? How are you making progress on your goals? How can I help? They become sort of a resource center. If the person, I mean, you name it, if the person, somebody's dream might be to, to become a U.S. citizen. We've had a couple of those and they might need legal help in that. So our dream manager might have to chase down a legal resource. Somebody might be dealing with some sort of a, oh, I don't I mean, I can't even, there's, there's so many different stories you can't even imagine. Whatever the case may be, a financial planner, whether they need a lawyer, whether they need a healthcare provider. Oh, one of my favorite stories, we had a young man uh, go into our dream manager's office and he was in his mid twenties. And he said, I've never been to a doctor before. I don't know where to start. I need to go see a doctor and, and I think I might be having a health problem. How do I do that? So our dream manager got on the phone and it helped him find a local doctor and got him an appointment and off he went. You know, we have no idea what people are struggling with in this world. Life throws us a lot of crazy curveballs. Curve so our dream managers just become, in addition to being a life coach who helps people achieve their dreams, they become a, a resource that can help people deal with their problems if that's, if that's what they need at that time. We try to meet people right where they're at and deal with what their critical problems are. And, and guess what? If you can take away those critical problems, then the next time around, then they're going to dream bigger. And then they're going to start to think about things like home ownership or education or whatever the case may so be. So you you have, or we have the president CEO of the Suter company that just said about five, four and a half, five years ago, you read the book Dream Manager by Matthew Kelly, and you implemented or created a program where your employees, now this is free of charge, folks. There's no cost to the employee. The suitor company will give them access to one of the dream managers, which is a life coach, and they, they get access to that person for a year and they don't pay for it. And, and most people are going to hear that. Most business owners are going to hear that and they're going to start to tighten up and tense up and they're going to think, my God, what's that going to cost us? Who's going to pay for that? But if, if you can talk in generalities over the last five years, what's revenue done? Total sales. Uh, yeah, we've grown in that period. We've grown by uh, well over 50%, probably more like 70%. So, so that investment for everybody that, that puckered up when they heard, my God, this guy's crazy. He's added staff and not charging and doing this for free. 50 to 70% growth over that same period. And at the same time, the intangible is how much better are those human beings' lives because the suitor company made an investment in this program and provided them with, with some uh, dream coaching or life coaching. Yeah, That's unheard need, of. Yeah. And if you need the business case for it again, you know, a turnovers reduced. So that's, well, that's a, that's a real cost, right? You can read all the studies on what, what turnover costs a business every time an employee leaves and the cost to recruit and train the replacement. Those numbers are staggering. And B, again, you end up with a more productive, engaged workforce, which we talked about, better safety, better quality, better service, all those things that go into your business. And again, for me, it's really more about serving those individuals than it is the bottom line, but they both happen. So great, let's, let's make the case both ways, but it's really just a fun and powerful way to use your platform. Frankly, if, you're, if, you, if, if you happen to be a listener who's a business owner or a, a C-suite executive at your company, 
you have a platform with which to serve others and to make a difference. Um, and I just encourage you to consider that and to do that. You don't have to forego the dollars and cents side of things because that's going to happen. And, and Tim, you just proved it by the fact that your same period of time, your revenue's up. But the other thing is that reduced turnover. I, I think that's the most expensive thing that doesn't get talked about enough in yeah. business ownership is is employee turnover i mean that's the most costly thing there is and it's damaging to your culture which is a key element of what we try to do here is build a a really unique and powerful culture so what about you guys also have provided or do provide access to money management financial management debt management um I, i think we could use the brand name i don't think they would complain about some marketing exposure but what are, talk about that. Is that part of the same program with the life coach or that's another program? Well, it's a different program. And we've had, we've had a number of things uh, spin off from our dream manager program, because what we've done is through the dream manager program, we've been able to better understand the needs of our employees. And so when we see that enough employees have a particular need, uh, we try to come up with an idea uh, on how to address that need. And we've done that in multiple different ways. And one of them I, I referenced a little bit ago, you know, which was which was U.S. citizenship. So we have a, a very diverse uh, workforce here at the Suter Company. Um, and we have a lot of people who have dreamed about becoming a U.S. citizen. So we were able to pull, pull together some educational materials and some structure around creating some U.S. citizenship classes. And we've had a number of people realize that dream. But the, the big one that we found is that financial literacy in this in this country is, is something we don't do a great job at uh, teaching, you know, in this in our school systems. So most people in our life without the right skill set that they need in order to manage the, their, own, their own household budget. Um, and so we identified that pretty early on through the Dream Manager program. But we started offering uh, financial literacy classes, Financial Peace University to our employees. And we've had about 125 employees go through that program and really make wholesale changes in the way they manage their household budgets and eliminating debt, protecting themselves through better insurance purchases in pursuing things like home ownership, being much smarter about having a rainy day fund so they're prepared for emergencies. You know, the data in the United States talks about, you know, roughly two thirds of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. That same number of people therefore don't have even $1,000 set aside to deal with things like a car repair or a broken appliance at home or any sort of unexpected expenditure. And you can only imagine, right, the, the stress that that financial situation causes when people are taking out payday loans and paying exorbitant interest rates and, and things of that nature and have credit card debt piling up. Financial literacy has been a high priority of ours for the last couple of years, helping our employees gain control of their household budget and become better consumers because we're we're certainly encouraged in this country to consume. And there again, I think it's another great example where somebody listening can hear, okay, the Suter company once again has invested money, spent money to provide services for employees that the employees don't pay for. This is going to, if I do that, it's coming right out of my pocketbook, but you nailed it. You know, if an employee comes to work and they're dealing with the stress of their car broke down and they cannot afford to fix it, or they have an appliance that failed and they they can't afford to fix it, they don't know how to replace it, that stress in the workplace, their mind won't be on work. And I can go down the road of they're going to be more likely to get hurt. They'll be more likely to have quality issues. They'll be more likely to work slower. I can go on and on. And in making that investment to prevent somebody from having to deal with that stress at all, 
you know, maybe it's that rainy day fund or our emergency fund or whatever you want to call it. it that investment by the company is going to pay off. I would just say that every time we've chosen to serve the needs of our employees, we've seen it come back in terms of business performance. Uh, the, the return on the investment has always been there. And I will use that word always. I mean, it's just been our experience. And we've just continued to try one thing after another to identify the needs of our employees and then come up, come up with creative ways. Part of our mission statement is creating unique solutions. And we just continue to come up with unique ways to serve the needs of, of our employees and it continues to turn us into a stronger, a stronger business and, a, and a, frankly, a more financially successful business. So there's two takeaways there that somebody listening can do immediately. Now, the dream manager might take some time, but yeah. I wrote it in my note. Matthew Kelly is the author of the book's dream manager. Start there. I think the Financial Peace University, for those that don't know, that's Dave Ramsey's program. And you can tune into Dave and, and most probably have on AM radio or xm radio or cable television or 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 but you that's something that even a you know 12 14 employee operation can probably easily afford to go buy the financial peace university even if you bought the book and just started you know a, a weekly or bi-weekly program so there's two things a company can do now any other programs like that that you have where you're you're actively making an investment on the front end because you're putting the, the employee first. We, we have a resource for our employees here called uh, Right Now Media at Work. It's a, a video library that people can access for again for free. It's not terribly expensive for us as a business to have that subscription, but it has everything from videos on how to, for parenting. It has, yeah, it has financial literacy videos, uh, leadership videos. It has all kinds of, it has uh, kids, you know, cartoon shows that your children can watch. It has it's a library of more than 10,000 videos that your employees can access for free once you subscribe as a business. That's called Right Now Media at Work. And so we also have workplace chaplains who serve our employees every week. These are professionally trained caregivers. They come into our facilities every week on all of our shifts. They wander around. They get to know our employees. We have to wear hairnets in our facility because we're a food processing company and they wear a, a different color yellow hairnet so that everybody can recognize them and they're they're very hands off until an employee has a problem that they need help with. And so that might be somebody struggling with a marital issue, it might be a death in the family, it might be a health issue in the family, it might be uh, going through a difficult divorce, uh, who knows what people are going through. These workplace chaplains are professionally trained caregivers and they can provide that one-on-one -on -one confidential up close and personal care in service, you don't necessarily want your HR team providing because of the confidential nature of some of the issues that people have. A, it's the right thing to do to serve people when they're in need. And B, it does have a business purpose to it in terms of, again, a healthier, more engaged, more productive, more energized workforce. And we've, we've talked about that plenty. I won't go through that again. But having those professional caregivers on site every week not knowing when something's going to go wrong, but being there when something does. So as I say, if somebody has a death in the family, if somebody has a sudden health issue, officiate weddings, they'll, they'll go to the hospital and visit our employees if need be. They'll, they'll attend funerals, whatever the case may be. We had a death in our family a couple of years ago, and, and two of the chaplains came to that funeral. It meant the world to me. Uh, my wife went through cancer. The chaplains were, were there for me when I needed them when, as my wife went through cancer. We all go through trials and tribulations and we all need somebody to lean on. And so to have those chat workplace chaplains there uh, whenever that need may be and our employees know that, it means the world to them. Looking at 
your employees, the way you look at your customers, you know, as, as a business owner, you're looking to solve people's problems. Mm-hmm. And why not, if you're in a position where you can solve your employees' problems or at least participate in that process, you're not going to be the credentialed chaplain that has the experience to, to work through some of the issues they may have, but you can provide that. One, it's the right thing to do. But the second thing is it, it's going to come back to the bottom line. So I think the there's stuff, there's four things right there that most companies even if they're small, they can, they can make an attempt at doing. And, and again, this is just one more tool. If you're, all you care about is making money. Great. This is one more tool in the toolbox that will allow you to make more money. Now, the, the, the last thing that ties to the, the service of the employees, Suter companies started 1925. So you guys are approaching hundred years. I have the year, right? Is yep. it 1920? Okay. So hundred year, almost a hundred year old entity. Three generations of family ownership, which is which is unheard of. You know, you don't see many family operations be able to continue to build as a suitor company has for any number of reasons. Kids aren't interested in the business. Family members don't get along, uh, whatever reason. But you've got three generations and now you're going into the fourth generation, which ties right into that idea that every employee is a stakeholder. Because in the case of the suitor company, not only are they a stakeholder, but they're a shareholder, they're owners. So what, what, like, what is that? How, how is that possible? What, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Brandon, I'm guessing that most of your listeners are, are at least somewhat familiar with employee stock ownership plans or ESOPs as we call them. And so about a year and a half ago, as part of our ownership succession plan, we went ahead and, and created an ESOP here at the Suter Company. And uh, the former shareholders, which were myself and several other Suter family members, sold all of our shares into a newly created ESOP trust, and we became a 100% employee-owned company. So I still maintain my ongoing role as president and CEO, but I'm no longer a shareholder. And I have a lot of fun uh, reminding our employees of that on a day-to-day basis, that most of our employees... Now, you have to meet some eligibility requirements before you start to get allocated shares, but almost all of our employees now own some shares, and so... Uh, I love joking with our employees that, that they own more shares than I do. So what are the terms and conditions for an employee? Because I'm guessing the way that the shares work is they're earned. They're Maybe earned. it's they're not per pay period and yep. hours worked or something like that. So they're not physically handing you money. Yep. That's the best part about it is, is the employee does not have to, to spend their own money to, to buy those shares. Uh, they're allocated. Uh, ESOPs are a retirement plan. So they're regulated by a lot of the same uh, regulations uh, uh, for things like 401k plans, ERISA uh, type regulations. So uh, it's a retirement plan. And so each employee uh, who meets the eligibility criteria, which is that you have to be age 18, it's for full-time employees. In the case of our plan, you have to work at least a thousand hours, which any full-time employee works far more than a thousand hours. A typical typical full-time employee works a little over 2000 hours. And then you have to reach your one-year anniversary basically with the company. So not, not very arduous eligibility requirements. And it's really, it's a retirement plan. So it's meant for long-term and it's meant to benefit, most greatly benefit long-term employees. But there's also a vesting schedule, which is a six-year vesting schedule, but basically your allocated shares once a year based on your total compensation. So uh, the higher your compensation, you get a slightly number, uh, higher number of shares allocated to your account. So it, it, it kind of, so the employees are not buying the shares. 
And really it, it would almost, and I'm completely making up numbers. I have no idea what the numbers actually are or what the share value is. And that really it's irrelevant anyways. But so instead of maybe making $20 per, per hour, it might be like making $19 and 80 cents or somewhat something slightly less. And then the difference is the share allocation or how does that work? No, it, it really ha it has no direct impact on the person's income at that moment in time. So what happens is you accumulate shares into your account, retirement account over a period of years. And of course, the longer you're here, the better, um, because every time you complete a full year, you get a share allocation. So if you only work here one or two years, the program's going to be meaningless to you because you wouldn't be vested anyway. But for employees that stay, uh, I'll use the word six years or more because the vesting schedule is six years. It's really going to start to be meaningful and successful ESOPs, people's ESOP retirement account end up becoming their largest single asset. In a lot of cases, greater than the value of their home or any 401k or other savings account that they would have, because what you're doing is you're accumulating shares every year. And so just to make the math easy, I'll say, so if an employee accumulates 10 shares a year, uh, after 10, 10 years, they're going to have hundred shares. After 20 years, they're going to have 200 shares and so on and so forth. And when they retire, then they get to sell those shares back to the company. Keep in mind, they didn't put any money into this at all, but they get to sell those shares back to the company at whatever the current value of the company is at that time. One of the wonderful things about 100% employee-owned subchapter S ESOPs is they don't pay federal income tax. ESOPs that are successful can, can become quite uh, cash-rich and quite valuable companies, which drives up that share price and really can be, become a very, very meaningful thing for employees who stay with the company for a long time. Easily could see retirement accounts for an average person who works on the production factory floor in, in the six-figure range. And it's not out of the question to think that if a, a young person came to work here and stayed their whole career, they could literally have a, a seven-figure retirement account if they stay with the company long enough. And of course, the company has to remain successful. There's no guarantees, but uh, nor was, are there when you invest your money in the stock market. <laughs> when you get started with, when you make that shift from a, a privately held company to the ESOP, the privately held company, those shareholders, which happen to be the, the suitor family members, the, the shares go into an ESOP trust. Mm -hmm. And then that first year or two, which is really where you are now on that timetable, how are the employees paying the trust? Like, how does the trust get, paid to somewhere there's a financial tra transaction to shift the share from the trust over to the employee. Yeah, there's a there's a, a fairly complicated and hard to explain sort of circular transaction that happens between not the employees, but between the company and the trust. Basically, there's a loan that exists. And through this share allocation process, and an, there's this annual process we go through, uh, that loan over time is paid down and the shares are allocated out. And if we were to allocate out a thousand shares and everybody made, and we had a thousand employees and everybody made the exact same amount of money, everybody would get one share. Uh, but of course, that's not the way that it works. People who are more highly compensated get their, it, it's much like a profit sharing allocation. So the more, the more money you make, the, you get so a percentage of the total eligible payroll. Is it almost like the appreciate the appreciation is covering the cost of the shares? Um, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, um, but there's a there are literal there are literal financial uh, transactions happening, and there are multiple loans that exist. And so we, as the selling shareholders, initially provided the loan to the the trust and the company. 
uh, to make this happen. And so we'll be paid back over a series of years, which is fine. In our case, that met our, that met our financial needs as we looked at our ownership succession plan. That made sense to us. But again, for us, it was really more about establishing something that would serve the needs of our employees. And in this case, serve the needs of our employees in the long run, right? For their retirement and the well-being of their, their family and, and, and themselves and their family. And I think it's, you know, that so everybody understands the employees aren't buying the shares. You know, it's just, it's, it's part of their compensation based upon how long they've worked there and their, the dollar amount they're compensated. And I think this ties nicely back to, you know, your interest in taking care of the employees. And, and I shared this with you when we met previously, I worked for an ESOP and, and I have years back as an engineer. And, and I have no doubt that there will be suitor company employees that will retire with a seven figure nest egg. And, and they will have been able to accumulate wealth in a manner that outside of starting their own business or maybe inheriting it or winning the lottery, they never would have been able to do. So I think it, that that's probably like the, I don't know that there's really a larger thing you could do for the employees when you look at serving them than, than setting up something like this. And, you know, the byproduct is they've got skin in the game now. They're yeah. a shareholder. Yeah. Once again, it's, it's good for them, but it's also good for business, right? Yeah, everybody There's wins. Countless studies that show that ESOPs are higher performing businesses. And, and by the way, we chose to do 100% um, of the shares, but you don't have to do that either. Um, you can do partial ESOPs and, and there are many, many ways you need to, you know, if you're at all interested, you need a good advisor who can walk you through all the options. But when we looked at, when we looked at our needs as a family, as a business owning family and wanting to create an ownership succession plan, the ESOP just made so much sense. Given our history here in this community, given our culture, given the way that we value our employees, the idea of selling to a third party really never gained any traction at all. And, and, uh, and, and personally, it allowed me to continue what I do on a day-to-day -day basis to run the company, even though I'm no longer a shareholder. Um, it just, it checked all the boxes. It didn't even allow us for, if um, there are six kids in the fourth generation in the Suter family, two of mine and, and my brother and sister as well have kids, but it still allows those kids to, if they ever want to come into the business, they certainly can. But that wasn't clear in our case that that, that was going to happen. So that was part of our you know, consideration as we try to decide what to do. And, and I think the most important lesson that I don't want to forget to talk about, Ray, is that over my career and my, I've interacted with, with plenty of people in, in the family-owned business world, what I've observed is that in a lot of cases, family-owned businesses don't make ownership succession plans until they face some sort of a crisis and they have to. And whether that's a health issue, whether it's family conflict, whether it's a financial crisis in the business, they end up selling because out of out of some crisis or some urgent need rather than a well thought out plan that meets the needs of the family of the employees of the community again back to the whole stakeholder all the stakeholder perspective we want the suter company to be here in the in the decalb sycamore community for the next 100 years we've been here for three generations we serve this community in every way shape and form that we can many of us grew up here we went to school here we work here this is our home, right? And we want this company to contribute and be a part of this community. I hope if it's God's will for the next hundred years. Yeah. And, the, and you proactively, and, and, I, and that's been my experience too. I, I know a number of small businesses over the years, in, in some cases, sizable and sizable companies with 150, 200 million a year in annual revenue, where they didn't proactively lay out that succession plan. And as a result, their, their backs up against the wall because of a health issue, a sudden death, 
a significant financial hiccup and now they're making a decision for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And in your, in a suitor company's case, you've made that decision proactively. And then also you, you've, you've kind of taken care of the employees. So back to that again, I, I love it. And part of the reason I like to share about ESOPs uh, and, and all of our story is there was an individual about uh, not quite 10 years ago who shared his story with me about becoming an ESOP. And that really was the original seed that got planted in the back of my mind, even though I didn't act on it right away. It was really because of his willingness to share his story and his enthusiasm for becoming an ESOP in his business. Really, I think that was the seed that was planted in the back of my brain that ultimately led to us exploring that and researching it in a meaningful way. And, and finding out that it was it, that it was the right thing for us to do. So, you know, I've, I've become more and more willing to share our story over the years because because I've come to realize as I've gotten a little older, a little more mature, that it's because others have been willing to share their experience and their stories with me that I've benefited from that. So if I if there happens to be one person who listens to this out there that is wondering what to do with their business and hadn't thought about ESOP before, maybe they'll think about it now and, and, and that can be paid forward. And that's the, you know, that's the whole goal. What I'm trying to do with this small business to grow is kind of, you know, I describe it and explain it is taking the wheel of a successful entrepreneur, small business owner, or executive, they've, they've already made the wheel. They've proven it will go down the roll road and roll just fine. Somebody can tune in, hear their story, take their wheel, go plug it into their organization or business and get rolling. And it, it's, you know, there's, a lot of this content I put out everywhere and it's, it's free. And the sole reason is, is to maybe help the next person out that wouldn't have that encounter with somebody that's got an ESOP otherwise, yeah. or, or wouldn't hear, you know, you can make an investment in your employees and yes, it's going to be in the expense column initially, but you're going to do right by your employees and it will come back. What are the top three do's in business? Number one is, is having a clear and strong vision core values and mission, right? Understanding, understanding the why of your business and why you do what you do, what, what, what gets you up in the morning, what makes you excited about coming to work and making sure that, 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 that your vision, your core values and your mission are communicated well to everyone in the organization. So they understand that what that means on a day-to-day basis how, how it, it impacts their, their day-to-day decision-making, how they behave, how they treat others how they serve our community, having all those things clearly identified, well-communicated, and being intentional about creating a culture that reflects your overall goals for running a business. That would be number one. The other thing I would think about is, is just, we talked about this early on, Ray, which is just knowing what you're good at, right? And staying focused on what you're good at. Don't try to be all things to all people. Understand what you're, what we, you know, we call strategic pillars. Understand what your strategic pillars are and resist with every ounce of your being drifting away from those things and just invest in your strengths. Let those strengths be amplified. Don't try to be all things to all people. And then lastly, uh, understand that at the end of the day, business is about people. 25 years ago, when I was getting started, became president and CEO. If you'd asked me, you know, we're all familiar with the 80-20 rule, right? I probably would have told you that business was 80% numbers and 20% people. Well, now I see it exactly the opposite way. It's at least 80% people. And and you can't ignore the numbers. I don't. I, that, that, I hope that's not. I hope that's not what's being a take, taken away from this conversation. But the way I see it now is, it's really eighty percent people and twenty percent numbers. And so, hiring good people, providing them the right resources, showing them the trust that they deserve, helping to break down barriers that are in their way, and then just let them be. As I said earlier, 
let them be the talented, creative, passionate people that they are and let them shine. That would, that would be it. The number one, again, strong vision and values. Number two, understand what you're good at. Number three, hire good people and, and let them shine and do what they do. Those would be my, those would be my three do's. What about the don'ts? Number one is don't miss an opportunity to serve. You know, if, again, if, and I'm speaking from the, the idea of being a, you know, an entrepreneur, a business owner, a, somebody who's in a, an, a sort of an executive or management role, you know, what you have is a platform and it's up to you to choose how you're going to use that platform. Uh, there's more to life than the bottom line. And I just would encourage you to I uh, would encourage you to use it for good. And I'm literally sitting here at my desk and I'm looking at a, uh, a little post-it note that sits on my desk every day that I look at. And as you probably picked up over the course of this conversation, uh, my faith is super important to me. So this is from Ephesians 4.1, which says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so, you know, again, we all can impact, uh, we can all use our leadership to impact people for good. So uh, I would say don't miss that opportunity. That'd be my number one don't. Number two, we, it, this goes back to the focus idea. Don't chase shiny objects. Don't try to be all things to all people. There's a couple schools of thought when it comes to strengths and weaknesses. Some people would say it's important to be quote unquote well, well balanced, right? You need to work on your weaknesses. I come from, more from the school of thought that we should all focus on our strengths and amplify those strengths. And I understand you can't, you, you know, you can't be, <laughs> you can't be completely weak in some areas. So if you've got a glaring problem, of course you need to fix it. But what I mean by that is back to the focus idea and understanding what your core strategic pillars are and where your company truly adds value, right? So uh, don't let yourself be distracted. Don't let yourself chase shiny object, objects because it sounds like a cool opportunity and don't try to be all things to all people and, and just chase things that, that ultimately you won't be good at. So that'd be my number two don't. And then number three is, is linked back to, to strong vision and, and values is don't drift. There's a wonderful book called Mission Drift uh, that talks about organizations over the years that have lost their way because, uh, because they, they don't stay focused on, on their vision and values and they become uh, whatever the winds of change tell them to become. So that, that would be uh, be intentional, don't drift. Uh, be true to who you are and, and be true to what uh, what your purpose for your business is. Recap of the top three must-dos. One, have a clear and strong vision, core values, and mission. Two, know what you're good at. Don't be all things to all people. And number three, business is about people. Here's a recap of the top three don't-dos. Number one, don't miss an opportunity to serve. Number two, don't chase shiny objects. Number three, don't drift. Special thanks to Tim Suter for taking time out of his busy day and schedule to share a little bit of the history and how the Suter company has navigated and found success over the better part of the last hundred years. If you like our content, be sure to subscribe to our channel, leave us a comment below. Also, be sure to check us out on your favorite podcast provider. See the links in the description below.